You're just in time for the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff, the radio outreach of the Christian Research Institute. Our purpose here at CRI is to equip Christians to provide biblical answers to life's most important questions, to read the Bible for all it's worth, and counter the teachings of cults and world religions that deviate from the plumb line of God's Word, because life and truth matter. For more information, to order resources or donate, call 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. That's equip.org. The following program was pre-recorded. Now here's the president of the Christian Research Institute, Hank Hanegraaff. And glad to be in the studio as we answer your questions throughout the United States and Canada. Do remember contact information on the web, equip.org, via the mailbox, 8500 Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. And resource consultants, as always, standing by, 888-7000. And the letter CRI, a lot of you hanging on. We'll go right to the phone lines. First up is Roger. He's listening in Modesta, California. Hi, Roger. Hi, Hank. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Good. My question has to do with uh, free will in heaven, but I want to say a couple things just so we're clear. Um, I do not believe that there will be another rebellion in heaven or that um, when you're in heaven you'll have the possibility of choosing not to be in heaven. However, when I go to explain uh, how we have our free will here on earth, it usually starts with uh, with a statement such as, uh, you know, if there's going to be true love, it must be chosen. You can't have good without having the possibility of evil type of thing. And I'm just trying to figure out how do I make both of those statements that I find to be true uh, compatible with each other when it comes to when we reach eternity. Sure. Yeah, one of the things we're told in the book of Revelation, which is also written by the beloved apostle, is that nothing impure will ever enter heaven. So there's not going to be the temptation of the world, the flesh, or the devil. So we are now continuously faced with temptations, but then temptations will be no more. So we have the promise of God that we will forever be able not to sin. We will forever be able to love the very one that we've chosen to have a relationship with, not only in time, but certainly for all eternity. And you can imagine that if you have no temptation whatsoever— and you have been actualized in your choices, you no longer have temptation, and you now see the very object of your love face-to-face, that the possibility of sinning is non-existent. And the reason is not because you don't have free will. The reason is, is because the imago dei within you is no longer marred. It is then again resplendent, so that you are capable of loving God just as you were designed to love God before sin came into the world. So I don't think this in any way encroaches upon free will, but 
the emphasis now becomes that you are knowing in completeness the one you were designed to have relationship with. So it's hard for us, even on a human level, to imagine not loving someone that we fell in love with and that we've cherished and nurtured a relationship with on earth. But imagine when this is the crystal Christ, the paragon of virtue, empowered by the counselor who is present in the presence of God, in the majesty of a recreated handiwork in which there is no more turmoil. It is unthinkable that we would ever choose for sin because that temptation or that choice has already been made. Okay. Um, do you have time for a follow-up question? Sure, of course. It's so, an important question. Yeah. So in in heaven, and I have your book, Afterlife, which um, is amazing as well. Um, so in heaven, because we make the choice, obviously, to be there, and you, we talk about, uh, you talk about where is heaven and, and going into all that. But uh, my question is, is uh, the one, those that choose not to be in the presence of God, then does that mean when it says in Revelation that no evil enter here, does that mean then they are in some different dimension than those of us who choose to be in the presence of God from eternity? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, if you think about heaven and earth, they're not two different locations, but two different dimensions. One is the habitation of God, and the other is the habitation of humanity. And now a veil separates the two. And as a result of that, though Jesus is close to us spiritually, he's with us, so that as we go through the tangled web of human existence, we don't go alone, we're going with another person. We don't see him. Because, again, there's a veil that separates the habitation of God from the habitation of humanity. When Jesus appears a second time, that veil is removed. And then the place of God and the place of humanity become conjoined. So just as God is now, as it were, in a different dimension, you can imagine that the unredeemed or those who do not want a relationship with God, likewise will be in a other dimension. So God's dimension and our dimension, or God's sacred place and our space become conjoined, but then the unregenerate are in a dimension which is just as inaccessible to us then as the habitation of God is inaccessible to us locationally now. Okay, and so because we freely choose to either be with God uh, through Jesus Christ, of course, or we reject that and, and we do not want to be in the presence of God, then obviously for those of us who choose to be in the presence of God, uh, to not be in God's presence would be held to us. But to those who deny or do not want anything to do with God, would they would they view hell as hell? Does that make sense? Well, they would view heaven as hell because they don't want anything to do with God. And so if there were no hell, then the righteous would inherit a counterfeit heaven and the unrighteous would be incarcerated in heaven against their will, which would be a torment worse than hell. The unregenerate do not want the light because they love darkness. I mean, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said that light came into darkness, but men loved 
darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So they don't want a relationship with God. And God, instead of rubbing them out, continues to sustain them in existence, albeit apart from his goodness and grace. Okay. So would it be safe for me to say then that as horrible as hell is going to be, um, it is not the worst thing God could do to his creation. The worst thing God could do to his creation would be to rub it out or to force them to force them to, to, to love him. Yeah, I mean, and I think you can say that logically because non-existence cannot be said to be better than any kind of existence. So I think it is a right premise to suggest that God continues to sustain the crowning jewels of his creation, albeit apart from his goodness, his glory, and his grace. Praise the Lord, and I just think that that just shows God's love ever more for his creation, don't you? Well, I really do, and it shows the perfect union of his sovereignty, his justice, and our culpability as human beings who have a choice to receive or reject. Amen. Well, the Lord has given you an amazing gift, and I praise God that um, I'm in the generation that I am where I can uh, be a witness to that, and so uh, praise the Lord. Thank you so much, Hank. Well, you get it, Roger. Thank you for your persistence and your follow-up. I'm sure you helped a lot of people. Back to the phone lines. We'll talk next to Lydia in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Lydia. Hank. Hi. Hi, I lost you. Uh, we used to write to each other because I got a lot of questions, <laughs> and I lost you. So my question is, is the Holy Communion we receive in Pentecostal the same as the communion in Catholic. So is it all the same Holy Ghost? I mean, the, the bread, the bread. Well, you know, there's a different view, Lydia, within Roman Catholicism and within the Pentecostal denomination with respect to what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is seen far more sacramentally within Catholicism as a means through which grace is offered to the recipient. Within most Pentecostal environments, the Eucharist is seen from the perspective of a memorial. But different strains of Christianity or different denominations within Christianity view the Eucharist in a different way. Some sacramentally, some spiritually as a means through which we receive grace, some as a memorial and so forth. We are coming up to a station break. We'll be right back on the other side of the break with more answers to your questions. Be right back. Truth Matters, Life Matters More is the story of a transformed life. Hank Hanegraaff passionately proclaims that truth matters and equips readers to defend the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain why his life and ministry were radically transformed by a three-word phrase, life matters more. Why does life matter more? Read Truth Matters, Life Matters More and discover the unexpected beauty of an authentic Christian life. To receive a copy of Truth Matters, Life Matters More for yourself or as a terrific gift to a friend or loved one, just call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the life-changing work of the Christian Research Institute. That's 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Hank Hanegraaff. 
Has God spoken? Are the words of Scripture merely human in origin, or are they in fact the very words of God Himself? Three years in the making and based on two decades of research and reflection, Hank Hanegraaff's monumental book, Has God Spoken?, answers what is surely the most important question facing our world. In Has God Spoken? Memorable Proofs of the Bible's Divine Inspiration, Hank counters the contentions of the Bible attackers and clearly shows that belief in the Holy Scriptures is not a guess or wishful thinking. It is the only logical conclusion after an honest examination of overwhelming evidence. Order Has God Spoken? from the Christian Research Institute by calling 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org. Equip Anyone who's been paying attention knows there's a war going on, not just on traditional morality, civility, and decency, but even more fundamentally on historic notions of truth. And the enemy isn't just the onslaught of fake news facilitated by a post-truth culture and turbocharged by growing legions of ideological spin doctors. No, the real enemies of truth range from postmodernist convictions that there is no objective truth to militant scientism that claims that only science Science can determine truth, and religion is little more than primitive superstitions. But CRI support team members are not waving a white flag of surrender. They're holding the fort by undergirding every one of Christian Research Institute's mind-shaping and life-changing outreaches 24-7. To learn how you can make a difference and enjoy all the benefits of support team membership, simply visit equip.org. Dr. Eben Alexander's wildly popular near-death experience book, Proof of Heaven, assures us that no matter what we do in this life, only unconditional love and joy await us in the world to come. But our Lord warned that while the gate to hell is wide, the road to it broad, and those who enter through it are many, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Your generous support lets Hank Hanegraaff and CRI speak out against the lies that lead to hell. In appreciation for your gift today, we'll rush you Hank's book, Afterlife, what you need to know about heaven, the hereafter, and near-death experiences, filled with answers to your questions about life after death. Call 888-7000-CRI or visit equip.org now. Again, that's equip.org. Now, here's Hank Hanegraaff. Yeah, thank you, Randy. Right back to our phone callers. Next up is John listening in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, John. Hi, Hank. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I certainly appreciate your ministry. Thank you. I've got a question for you for which I, uh, I think I need a pretty deep answer. At least sure. I'm hoping to. I, I've been a Christian for a lot of years, for better than 30 years, and um, I've... Uh, through a lot of reading and study and so forth, I've, I'm pretty confident that I'm hanging my hat uh, on uh, the King James as, as the best uh, presentation of the Scripture. But I, I have to say I'm not in the King James-only camp uh, like a lot of the, the folks that I've associated with in the past uh, really are. So I'm, I'm not in that sort of a camp, but I'm also not really comfortable 
with uh, a lot of other folks that would say that it's the original manuscripts that were that were handed down uh, that are truly inerrant. So I, I've, on one hand, I'm seeing this King James only camp that that tells me that the King James is 100% perfect and infallible and inerrant. And then on another hand, I have folks telling me that it's the original scriptures that are inerrant. I'm not really comfortable with either side, and, and uh, yet I don't know that there is a middle ground, uh, at least not one that I've encountered yet, and I'm I'm calling for your help and uh, and your enlightenment on this issue. Yeah, well, kind of interesting, because if you think about the King James-only crowd, they hold that the King James Version is an autograph, as though it came down from Mount Sinai hot off the plate. So they're holding to the notion that that is the autograph, and therefore it is the authorized version and the only version that we should read. So the same idea is inherent in the King James only view. But in reality, I do think it is what you stated in the prologue to your question. It is a claim, inerrancy is a claim, not for the translations. It's never been for the translations because there are mistakes in translations. There are copyist errors in translations. It is for the autographs themselves. And the idea is that through the manuscript, you can get back to the autographs. And that even what we have in the translations is substantially correct for faith and practice, that there's no major doctrinal deviations and so forth, so that the kinds of mistakes that you find in the translations are matters of style and spelling, but never matters of substance. But the claim for inerrancy is not for translation, any particular translation, always for the autographs. Is it possible to assemble a collection of manuscripts and, and, and parchments and scrolls and so forth? I know there's lots of tiny little fragments of various uh, portions of Scripture. Is it possible to assemble a 100% accurate and inerrant version of Scripture in the original languages from the manuscripts that we have? Let me use the illustration. If I took let's say, a little booklet that I have written and gave it to you and five other people, and I asked all of you to hand copy what I gave you, and then I lost the original, I would get five copies, and all five copies would have mistakes. Some would be a matter of spelling, some might be the missing of a conjunction, but all of them would be different in one way or other. But even if I lost the original, though the copies had mistakes in them, by comparing copy with copy, I could get back to the original. And that's what the science of textual criticism is. It is a way of getting back to the original. And that's the beauty that we have. The New Testament books were written at various times. They were quickly copied. They were distributed as soon as they were written. And there was never a time that anyone or any group could gather up all the manuscripts and make extensive changes in the text itself. They couldn't cut out, for example, the deity of Jesus Christ or insert some foreign doctrine or some foreign concept. So by the time that ecclesiastical power came into play, 
these texts were already long buried in the sands of Egypt and out of reach of any attempted alteration. So the autographs, and I've written about this, I'm looking at a book that I wrote called Has God Spoken? I've written about the fact that the autographs are forever immortalized within a supernaturally preserved corpus of manuscripts. So instead of having less than the autographs, we have far more. We have a treasure trove of manuscripts in excess of almost... uh, 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, which have now been uncovered. And through, again, comparison, we can get back to the autograph. And so we're in a very wonderful position, actually a far better position than when the King James was originally commissioned in 1604 and then completed in 1611. Because at that particular point, they didn't have the entirety of the Bible in the original languages. Just a quick follow-up. Sure. In terms of practicality, in practical advice, yep. what can someone such as myself, who's a, you know, uh, attempting to be a student of Scripture, what is my best tactic and strategy? I, 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 I want to know that what I'm reading is as close to the original as possible. Do I scan multiple versions and commentaries, or, or what? What is your advice on that? Well, I mean, I think what we have is a wonderful situation where you can trust the modern translations, whether it's the NIV or the NASB or the King James Version or the New King James Version. I mean, the basic Bible translations, and there are certainly some bad ones, but the basic Bible translations extant today, you can trust them by and large because they're very much like what we have in the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we now had manuscripts that predated the Masoretic text by a thousand years. So now you have a thousand year span of time by which you can compare to see if the word has been preserved. And while there were mistakes in style and spelling that have been discovered by comparing the Masoretic text with the Qumran scrolls, there are no mistakes in substance. So we can see just as the Old Testament was preserved in that particular illustration or case, example that I just gave you, we can have the same confidence with the New Testament. So there's nothing with respect to faith or practice that's altered. It's just that in some cases you have clear renditions of biblical passages. I mean, I I can give you examples of that. I mean, you look at the King James Version in various permutations, and you find that what you have is not quite as good in some cases in terms of explicating the deity of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, it says, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that's very clear in terms of underscoring the deity of Jesus Christ. That's the NIV that I just quoted. The KJV says, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, while the KJV is very clear with respect to the deity of Jesus Christ, it's not quite as clear in this verse as it should be. 
So, I mean, whenever translation is involved, there's a human factor that enters the equation. But by and large, again, I think that the translations that we have are extraordinarily good. And again, it is because we have a wealth of manuscripts, and through the science of textual criticism, you can get back to a pretty clear permutation of the original manuscripts, and that's what we have in the translations. You know, I've written about how this whole process works. I've talked about the copyist practices. I've talked about the whole area of oral transmission. I've talked about the papyrus and parchment manuscripts, the internal evidence, the external evidence, the science of textual criticism, by the way, that is an acronym, copies, by which you can remember exactly how we have the Bibles we have today and why you can trust them. It's the first section of a book that is titled Has God Spoken? Memorable Proofs for the Bible's Divine Inspiration. Okay. I'll look for that. Thank you. You got it. Thank you, John. Appreciate your call. Back to the phone lines. We'll talk next to Tiffany, St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Hank. My question is about incest in Genesis. Yeah. Why would it be considered a sin in Leviticus, but it's used for procreation with Cain and his wife. Yeah, I actually wrote about this in the Creation Answer book, and I point out that genetic imperfections accumulated gradually over time, and therefore there was no prohibition against incest in the earlier stages of human civilization. So you could say incest was not incest in the earlier stages of human civilization. The Levitical law against incestuous relationships was actually issued by God at the time of Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of Cain. And therefore, we wouldn't suppose in any way that we should deem those relationships incestuous. And the reason that God set those parameters around relationships between people is because, again, genetic imperfections accumulate over time, so God set that provision out for our protection. Thanks for tuning in. Look forward to seeing you next time with more of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Our website, equip.org, has an abundance of resources to sharpen your discernment skills and help you grow in life and truth. We provide books, videos, and informative articles. You can also listen to the broadcast, download archived programs, get answers to pressing Bible questions, or connect with us via social media. All this and more at equip.org. Again, the address is equip.org. The Bible Answer Man broadcast is supported by listeners like you. We're on the air because life and truth matter. God spoken? Are the words of Scripture merely human in origin, or are they in fact the very words of God Himself? Three years in the making and based on two decades of research and reflection, Hank Hanegraaff's monumental book, Has God Spoken?, answers what is surely the most important question facing our world. In Has God Spoken? Memorable Proofs of the Bible's Divine Inspiration, Hank counters the contentions of the Bible attackers and clearly shows that belief in the Holy Scriptures is not a guess or wishful thinking. 
It is the only logical conclusion after an honest examination of overwhelming evidence. Order Has God Spoken from the Christian Research Institute by calling 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org, equip.org.